Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Over the past couple of weeks, I've been excitedly watching a delayed Tour de France, and this past weekend saw the resumption of some larger triathlons in Europe, and the coming weeks are going to see additional races of similar size take place in Australia. Of course, what makes this possible is the fact that the areas where these races are taking place have done a significantly better job of managing COVID-19 within their populations than have we here in the United States. Still, all of these things have me feeling just the tiniest bit optimistic with regards to racing in 2021. Though, of course, so much can happen between then and now, so it's not like I've gone ahead and booked any flights or anything. Still, Imagining that racing might come back got me thinking about what things could look like, and I have a hunch that the landscape in triathlon could be in for even more tectonic shifts as a result of everything that's happened this past year. Now, I admit that what I'm about to propose is entirely speculative, and I have no inside information whatsoever, but I wouldn't be surprised to see something as big as the Ironman World Championships undergo a big change in 2021 if certain circumstances come to pass. Think about all of these things. First, the Ironman 70.3 Worlds have become a huge success, and by all accounts, quite a cash cow for the WTC. Splitting the events across two days with a dedicated women's race has been a boon both for the sport, to be able to finally feature the women prominently in the way that they deserve, and as a consequence, to give more slots to the continually growing segment of men who make up the lion's share of competitors in the age group ranks. Second, as Ironman has surged in popularity, Kona slots have become increasingly difficult to come by because the field is limited by the size of the pier where the race takes place. Now, this has made for a fair amount of grousing among the really good age group athletes who simply cannot get a slot and cause demand for those slots to continue to grow year by year such that there is just an unbelievable pent-up demand at this point. Throw into this the idea that there's kind of a hot and cold relationship between Ironman and the people in Kona itself, as well as the dual issues of the race course in Hawaii not being really all that difficult, it's the weather that makes it hard, not the course itself, and the fact that Kona has become a notorious draft fest on the bike, owing to the very similar capabilities of the competitors in the water and on two wheels. And you just begin to understand why a couple of years ago, rumors began to swirl around a possible move of the iconic race to an alternative venue. Now, at the time, those rumors were met mostly with derision, but there was a fair amount of support for the idea as well. So hear me out now. My best guess is that if by spring of 2021, the island of Hawaii is still restricting travel, and if the Ironman World Championships are in peril for next year, and if other races, especially in the continental United States, have started up again, then the WTC might make a decision to move the cone event somewhere else. At first, it may just be a single-day event, but with more slots because of less restrictions on numbers provided by a different venue, then that might start to look pretty enticing. Going forward, WTC might decide to go a couple of ways. Maybe they rotate the race the same way as they do for 70.3 World Championships, with Kona being featured every few years. Or, and I'm just spitballing here, on the same weekend, maybe they hold two events. One event for one sex in a different place each year, and the other event in Kona for the other sex, with the sexes flipping every year. So, for example, in 2022, the men's Ironman World Championship would be Saturday in Kona, and the women's would take place on Sunday in Nice. 
Then in 2023, the women on Saturday in Kona and the men on Sunday in Arizona. Uh, this is all speculative, of course. Now, this could all be completely off base and nothing could change. But in this time of pandemic, I kind of need something to distract me. And personally, I like the thought of this. What do you think? Do you have any thoughts on this idea? Or do you have any ideas of your own about how things could look in the future? Well, drop me a line and let me know. On the show today, Fraser Atkinson is a mental performance coach with a PhD in sports psychology. He joins me to talk about the often underappreciated and overlooked mental aspects of training and racing in endurance sports. How can we make ourselves better by using our minds? But first, I've got a medical question to answer. Gary wrote to me to ask about overtraining. Is it a thing that can be easily diagnosed, or is it just a throwaway diagnosis used for athletes who are just not responding the way they wish they were to training? Are there tests that can be done to identify it, or ways to treat it, if in fact it exists at all? Well, I take a look at all of this and come up with some answers for this common question, and all of that's coming up right now. A couple of episodes ago, I delved into a social media post that Taryn Gessel, otherwise known as Triathlon Taryn, had posted to his various feeds. In discussing what ailed Taryn, I speculated that overtraining was likely a big contributor, but I didn't really get into what that meant or be any more specific about it. Well, Gary wrote to me and made me reconsider that choice. He asks if overtraining is actually a thing, and by that he means, is it a recognized distinct entity? And if so, are there any tests that can be done to diagnose it? This is actually a harder question to answer than it should be, but only because it's really hard to study. When I looked into the medical literature for studies on overtraining, I came up with a lot of conflicting reports and anecdotal evidence, but very little in the way of good hard science. But there's pretty good reason for this. Overtraining is simply a difficult thing to study, and it's not like it would be ethical to subject people to overtraining just to study it, given that there are so many recognized adverse effects associated with it. So let's begin by first defining and distinguishing overtraining from overreaching. Overtraining is an accumulation of training and or non-training stress that results in a long-term decrement in performance capacity with or without related physiological and psychological signs and symptoms of overtraining in which restoration of performance capacity can take several weeks or even months. Compare and contrast this to overreaching, which is an accumulation of training and or non-training stress resulting in a short-term decrement in performance capacity with or without related physiological and psychological signs of symptoms of overtraining in which restoration of performance capacity can take several days to several weeks. Now, these definitions suggest that the difference between overtraining and overreaching is the amount of time needed for performance restoration, and not really the type of duration of training stress or the degree of impairment. In general, overtraining syndrome can be defined as increased fatigue, decreased performance, and an inability to consolidate the gains from additional training coupled with sleep and mood disturbances, though not all of these things have to be present in all cases. The reason I made the important distinction between overreaching and overtraining is because overreaching is something that many athletes do on a regular basis. By overstressing themselves, either through higher intensity or longer duration efforts, athletes try to improve themselves by pushing through their usual limits and, in essence, break themselves down a little bit so that they can then build themselves up back even stronger. Essentially, such intensified training results in a temporary decline in performance 
but when the athlete gives themselves appropriate periods of recovery, a positive supercompensation effect occurs with the athlete exhibiting enhanced performance. So overreaching is something we all want to do, but it's when overreaching leads to overtraining that we get into trouble. Because if continued efforts of overreaching are done without appropriate recovery, the athlete then becomes susceptible to overtraining, and the impact can be much more significant and long-lasting. Now, as I mentioned, you can't ethically put athletes into a program where they become overtrained in order to study the effects. Consequently, all the studies on overtraining actually look at athletes who are overreaching and try to extrapolate the results to hypothetical situations of overtraining. But this obviously is not ideal. Still, there is a fair amount of expert opinion and some amount of observational data out there to help us understand the importance of overtraining as an issue for triathletes as well as other endurance athletes and what can be done to prevent it. The actual incidence of overtraining, that is to say how often it occurs in different types of athletes over the course of time, is unclear. Because overtraining syndrome is difficult to quantify, it has proven difficult to assess how many athletes actually have it or develop it over time. What does appear consistently, though, is that endurance athletes are much more prone to developing this than are athletes in other types of sports. As I mentioned earlier, a performance decline and inability to progress with training are hallmarks of both overreaching and overtraining. Unfortunately, it's hard to be more specific and quantify this decline any more than just to say that it happens, that there is this performance decline. But it's really difficult to say, well, how much? The reason for this is simply that the decline is not predictable and varies greatly depending on the athlete and the assessment that is used to identify it. So for this reason, overtraining cannot have a more uniform criterion for making its diagnosis. Similarly, while changes in mood and sleep are both features of overtraining, they too are really difficult to quantify, and aside from being unpredictable, are not always present. So you can see that this is a really tough nut to crack. In his question to me, Gary asked if there are any medical tests that could be done to confirm overtraining syndrome, and he's not the only one to have had this thought. Many researchers have looked at the question, and to date, none of VO2 max, biochemical tests, tests of immune function or hormone levels have ever been found to be reliable or to accurately predict overtraining. One study did demonstrate that athletes who are overtrained do demonstrate abnormal hormonal responses to non-exercise stresses, but the magnitude of the effect was small, and the practical applications of this finding are kind of hard to imagine. Heart rate variability is another measure that has started to get some interest from researchers with respect to how it relates to overtraining, but as I said when I reviewed this topic in detail back in episode 19, the studies on this, while promising, are still not convincing enough. So at this point, then, we have a real conundrum. We have a constellation of symptoms and signs that many athletes and coaches will swear are very real, debilitating, and often take a very long time to recover from. But we have no really good way of reliably diagnosing the syndrome, nor of knowing how many are afflicted by it at any one time. Still, you don't need to do a research study to prove that jumping from a plane without a parachute is a bad idea. Research doesn't always provide the answers, and this just might be a case where the ailment is just not that amenable to study. So that doesn't mean that it isn't a thing, just that it's not that easy to quantify and to do research on. The best evidence on this subject, then, really is in the form of expert opinion, and that comes from sports physiologists, athletes, and coaches, all of whom remain unified on a couple of important points as it relates to overtraining syndrome. First and foremost, there is pretty widespread consensus that this does actually exist. 
Second, the development of overtraining syndrome is certainly due to continued stresses, usually in the form of overreaching without adequate recovery time. This results in a vicious cycle in which the athlete continues to attempt to overreach, but never gets the benefits of doing so because they don't get that super compensation that comes with adequate recovery, and instead, they cycle downwards to a point that they see significant decrements in their performance. How much recovery is needed after overreaching remains a matter of debate, and whether or not that recovery should be active or passive also is somewhat unresolved. For the most part, most people with opinions on this matter say that there is a significant individual component related to the athlete themselves, but that in almost all cases, active recovery is as good, if not better than passive. So as an individual athlete, you've gone out, you've done a super hard block of training, you've been overreaching, and you've gotten to that point where you are really ready to recover. How long should that recovery period going to be? I'm afraid I don't have a fixed answer for you, but the recovery period is going to be important because it's going to be during that time that you're going to get that super compensation uh, effect where you're going to consolidate your gains and see significant improvements in performance. But most importantly, avoid the risk of overtraining. Michael Kelman is a sports physiologist who has done the most work on the subject of overtraining. And he believes that the best means of assessing an athlete to determine if they are at risk or becoming overtrained is to perform fairly complex psychological standardized assessments on an ongoing basis. That by doing so, the signs of overtraining can be identified early and changes can be made in time to mitigate it. Unfortunately, this isn't really all that practical for the everyday triathlete. So for the rest of us, I suggest the following in order to stay in touch with your own training schedule, your own body, and to get a sense as to whether or not you might be at risk of or potentially heading down the road of overtraining. First, make sure you're getting adequate recovery built into your training program, especially after particularly hard blocks. Second, self-monitor your sleep habits. If sleeping becomes difficult and uneven, especially in the midst of difficult blocks of training, then it's probably time to consider adding a period of recovery. Third, listen to those around you for signs that you may be experiencing moodiness or emotional lability. This, again, is an important sign that a recovery period may be needed. And finally, embrace recovery. Far from being a four-letter word, recovery is when you consolidate the gains of training and more importantly, avoid those long-term effects of overtraining syndrome that can really set you back. Recovery should probably be active, so it doesn't mean sitting around on the couch. It just means a period of easier workouts to allow your body and mind to be ready for the next paid block. Doing these things together in concert will go a long way to allowing you to overreach without becoming overtrained. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. As triathletes and endurance athletes, we spend a lot of time concerning ourselves with the physical aspects of training and preparation. We always want to ensure that when we reach the start line, we do so in peak physical condition. But in doing so, we may be neglecting an important key to success, and that is the mental aspects, because we often underappreciate how our minds can impact our body's performance. To discuss this, I'm joined today by Fraser Atkinson. Fraser is an instructor in sports psychology at the University of British Columbia and a mental performance coach who has worked with athletes in high school, collegiate, and professional sports. 
Originally from Manchester, England, Fraser moved to the United States at 21, where he was first introduced to sports psychology at the University of Kansas. This then led him to graduate school in North Dakota for his master's, and then to Detroit to complete his PhD in sports psychology. But now he's here on the TriDoc podcast. Welcome, Fraser. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Fraser, when uh, we talk about uh, things like uh, the mental aspects of uh, the sports game, what are some of the more frequent mistakes that you have encountered uh, that endurance athletes make in preparing for an event? Uh, Well, I think the biggest thing is uh, focusing mainly on the process. Um, What we see in a lot of endurance athletes during the the kind of pre-competition training is expecting the results very quickly. Now, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an old adage, but it's that one focus on the process and try and not beat yourself up mentally when you are, aren't getting maybe the results that you were, you were expecting. So what does that really look like? Well, a lot of the time it comes to the self-talk that an athlete um, uh, kind of has within their own mental mindset so it's um it's the way that we speak to ourselves on a consistent basis when we're not getting the results um that we're kind of expecting or putting the pressure on ourselves to do so so it's the it's the connection between self-compassion and trusting the process i guess we could say it's um in terms of the physical aspect it's being kind to oneself on the the work that we're doing to to get better um but also it's it's um, it's that internal talk and the the negative chatter that we experience when we're not getting the results. So those are the the two things I would mainly say that we're recognizing uh, a lot in endurance athletes, and in turn, this leads to a lack of confidence and and more self doubt, which you know isn't helpful when we're going into the field of competition. And. Can I interpret that a little bit to mean almost like giving yourself permission to have a bad day? Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's getting back on the horse when things don't go well. And, you know, a, a slow run or a slow swim or a slow cycle doesn't mean that that's the, that's the be all or end. Or, and as you rightly say, yes, you, it's, it's having the self-compassion to accept that bad performance every now and then. And then what are the kinds of mistakes that, athletes will often make during an event that can undermine their ability to perform? Uh, well, again, I think it comes back to um, the self-talk um, that one has during the performance. So it's expecting um, a certain time or a certain split and a lot of time getting down on oneself or in that situation. So it's all about being kind to yourself again in the way that we're speaking to ourselves, but then also um Focusing on the the next the next uh, action that one can take, so it can be. So let me just slow down there a bit. So it can be positive self talk, so calming oneself down, as I just spoke uh, previously. Imagery, we want to use that positive imagery. So focusing on what the next two minutes will look like, the next one minute. A, a thing that I commonly say is excellent is in the next five minutes. You can't worry about what will happen in 25 minutes we can only work on the next five minutes and one thing that I've liked to use a lot and like to recommend is kind of piggybacking on the imagery is focusing mainly on a a calming image so when things don't go well if we use a a metaphor of 
a crashing wave. If you're running or you're cycling, imagining a crashing wave is like a wrestle. You know, you don't want to be wrestling through the event, wrestling through the water, wrestling on a run. So using the imagery to visualize a calming lake, a calming situation to allow yourself to get back into the process of competing at the level that you want and and kind of ignoring that mental chatter through the self-talk that I I touched on. And then, as I said, reframing positively with self-talk and then bringing in um, imagery. One thing as well that we have seen um, in elite sports, and I don't expect you to maybe uh, be familiar with this athlete, but a famous marathon runner called Paula Radcliffe from the UK, who I know, um, a lot of the time when she would run, she would take her mind completely off the event. So she would focus on a TV show that she would like, and she would almost, uh, she would visualize how the episode would look going forward. And the reason I shared this example is she's detaching herself from the experience and taking her mind elsewhere, you know, not getting caught up in the moment, enjoying the process here and there, and uh, any negativity that is going in her mind, she'll take it away into this own little uh, TV series that she has in her mind, which gives her the peace of mind to kind of kick on and excel accordingly. Well, you said a lot there. I want to I want to spend some time unpacking it. Uh, but first of all, I am very familiar with Paula Radcliffe. I've seen many of her uh, uh, many of her performances. Of course, she's uh, quite famous even over on this side of the pond. Um, but I, I just want to go back a little bit because some of the things that you said are almost like counter to a lot of the things we hear or read in the media about the intense focus that athletes will have or bring to the fore and and how that seems to get them through the tough spots and you you almost seem to be talking about something the opposite of detaching themselves rather than focusing it so intently on what's going on uh detaching themselves so that things just kind of play out uh, am i understanding that correctly yeah I, I mean i think i'm using the example i'm using this in relation to obviously endurance sports endurance sports you know can take an hour two three four and beyond and if you try and wrestle and fight to you know, be the best that you can in that particular moment, that can be quite exhausting. So um, uh, the reason I, I say these things is when you're going uh, in a, an event that does take a, a period of time, it's being kind to yourself and not expecting things that happen right there and then. You know, it's, it is obviously you do excellent is only in the next five minutes. And I do encourage people to do the best that they can, but also realizing, I mean, it's very cliche that it's a marathon, not a sprint is how I, uh, how I am kind of approaching uh, the examples that I've given. Going backwards, then it, you you start your event. It's it's like you said. I mean, this you know triathlons are are long events, especially if we're talking about seventy point three or Ironman. And so it's not so much getting down on yourself or anything that happens in you know the last five minutes or ten minutes. It's understanding that this event goes on for a while. So don't dwell on anything that might have happened that was negative in the last. You get a flat, for example. It's gone. It's in the past. So focus on the next five minutes. Am I mm-hmm. getting? Am I getting this? Pretty much uh, what you're That's saying. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It's just. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's okay if you've not. You know, if you're in a triathlon and you want to have completed the swim in a period of time, you've not done it. That's it's fine. You know, it's going back and and working out where you can make up that time if you wanted. 
if you if it's so important to you, but also just enjoy the process what you're doing. You know, a lot of these triathlons are in beautiful situations. Look to your left, look to your right, be where your feet are, and just gradually do what you can uh, with what you've got. And eventually, I am very confident that the time that you might have lost on the swim, you'll be able to make up on the cycle and the the run. But I also want to I also want to reiterate that you know it's it's not my my point isn't just go out there and look at the birds and the bees and whistle along. You know, if you want to compete at the highest level, you do have to get your head down and pedal hard every now and then. And I'm just trying to say, um, you know, when you aren't achieving the things that you would want to achieve in an event, that's okay. Get on the next, put the effort into the next moment and gradually bit by bit, things will change and you'll notice a difference. I, I often use, an example in my class, brick by brick and the house is built, you know, brick by brick and effort by effort progress will be made in the event. Yeah. Um, and listen, in my own experience, uh, what you're saying resonates very well. I, I've had probably some of my best race performances in environments where it's very pretty and there's a lot to look at because they are long days. And mm-hmm. if I, you know, I, I'm physically capable of putting out a hard effort for a very long time, but I'm much more capable of doing that when I can distract myself mentally and see things that keep me distracted so that I'm not focusing so much on just, you know, the effort of pedaling the whole time. Uh, So I, that, that definitely resonates with me and, and, and the whole, you know, I, I try to share this with my athletes all the time. You know, whatever has happened to this point is in the past and dwelling on it is not helpful. You mm-hmm. need to just focus on what you can do going forward to try and do whatever you can with what's left of the race, because whatever has passed, you can't do anything about that now. You can think about that and dissect that after the race is over, but there's no sense dwelling on it. So everything that you've said to this point makes a whole lot of sense to me. And I, I hope that, um, a lot of people listening will, will have it resonate with them as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, one of the things I work with my athletes on, and, uh, I'm interested to hear your take on this is, you know, I, I feel like it's really important to practice these skills because so many times athletes will get nervous before races. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like if you practice in training to, uh, do everything that you would do in a race, then being nervous for a race should be much less of an issue. So how do you suggest that people train these mental aspects when they're training so that when they show up in a race, it becomes second nature? One thing that I think is um, very beneficial, and I'm just really piggybacking on the example that you've given them with your athletes, is preparing for for what ifs. What if things don't go according to plan? What if um, the my swim was much slower? I have an issue with my bike. Going through all these what if kind of worst case scenarios and visualizing those uh, scenarios through mental imagery. So if this happens. So what? How will I respond? If this happens, how will I respond? Do this over a period of time. And then when situations that weren't planned come into play, then, oh, you've already experienced it in your mind. You've seen it. You can then change it. You can adapt accordingly. And now this is an example that we've seen in the highest level of sport with Michael Phelps. When Michael Phelps was competing in the London Olympics, he um, his goggles had filled up with water and he couldn't see anything with the last 50 meters in the 
100 meters butterfly, couldn't see anything. What he was able to refer to was he had played out a scenario like this, a what if through his mental imagery before performance. So when it came to it and he was in that situation, that was fine to him. He was very calm, very composed and very confident in the moment because he was able to go back to his mental preparation that he'd put in the time with prior to the event. In turn, he went on, put his head down, counted the strokes and came out with a gold medal. So this is an example of preparing for worst case scenario and then adapting accordingly. Um, so what I would say to answer the question, sorry, would be to prepare for the what if. So using the mental imagery, getting in connection with the self-talk, what, what kind of things do you as an athlete say to yourself when things get tough and when things go wrong? If you go hard on yourself, does that help you or does it hurt you? Well, if it hurts you, Let's make sure that before we go into the event, we're aware we um, are able to change that inner dialogue, that inner chimp, and then it can be a helpful talk rather than a, a hurting voice that we hear when things aren't going so well. Yeah, it's an excellent example and uh, also uh, excellent advice. Uh, I want to change uh, uh, tax just a little bit. Um, something that I'm curious about, uh, you know, we hear a lot about how pain and suffering are more mental than physical mm -hmm. aspects in endurance sports. Mm -hmm. uh, personally, uh, I can attest to, uh, they feel very real physically to me, mm -hmm. <laughs> especially towards the back end of the marathon and an Ironman. Right. Uh, I'm just curious what your take is on that. Is there truth to this idea that, uh, you know, all this pain is really in your head? And if so, how does one work to overcome it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because I've all, I even was speaking with someone the other day and uh, they were saying how uh, when you run, say, a five mile, a mile four and a half, you can think, oh, gosh, this is a little bit difficult. Or when it's mile 14, the last mile seems a little bit harder, but you're still putting in you know, a considerable time from five miles to, to 15 miles. But I guess really suffering comes from resistance. It's, it's the resistance to what? Well, in the example of... Uh, triathlete. It might be the resistance to pain. It might be the resistance to the discomfort that we we might be experiencing. And where does that come from? Well, again, uh, sorry to, to if it's if it's a, a consistent theme and uh, slightly overdrawn in this example, but it's it's the way that we talk to ourselves. The suffering is whatever we allow. It's what we if we want to suffer, we can suffer. That's completely fine. We're, we can allow ourselves to suffer and struggle or we can let go and just let it rip. We can accept that, yeah, I'm struggling. This is hard, man. I am going through a difficult time right now. I'm suffering with the pain of this. I'm, I'm struggling with the, the effort that I need to push forward, but so be it. I've chosen to do this. I love this. Look left, look right. See what's to my left. See what's to the right. Be where my feet are. Let it go and just let it rip. Just go for it. Just, you know, put that aside, acknowledge it's there, and then move on accordingly. If if you sit with it and you allow yourself to recognize those thoughts and, and the pain and the, the struggle, it does become what you just called suffering. And there's no need to suffer. We we can choose to suffer. Sorry. We can choose to suffer. For sure we can. But we don't have to suffer. We can accept that the period of time is difficult. Yep, fine, perfect. And then let it go and then just let it rip. Just put that effort uh, into the 
the present moment and, and see where we can go from there. Hmm. So athletes spend a, a lot of time and in my mind, way too much money on training, uh, in terms of, you know, supplements and all of this gear and everything else. Um, what, what can they do to train their minds in order mm -hmm. to improve? Because I feel like that continues to be neglected. I mean, we talked about it, visualization, we talked about practice, but is there anything else that uh, athletes can really spend time on uh, either while they're training or in between training sessions to mm -hmm. set themselves up for success? For sure, for sure. So uh, obviously I've mentioned a lot throughout this talk the, the, the importance of that self-talk. Um, and I was mentioning the example about the what if, the what if the situation and, and what kind of things do you sell to, say to yourself. And that all comes from the self-awareness. So you, if you want to work on your mind, you need to know what thoughts and feelings you're having during performance. So how do we do that? As I mentioned, self-awareness. So meditating is a great example um, of recognizing some of the, the daily thoughts that come up. But if, if meditation isn't your thing, that's completely fine. Go over this plan of race and uh, and stem off uh, particular moments, particular situations, and some of the thoughts and feelings you have then, and then tweak those accordingly. Because confidence uh, in terms of elite performance in the present moments come from what we say to ourselves. So it's really working on that that self-talk a lot of the time. Uh, we can also use imagery, positive imagery, before we go out and compete, as you've mentioned, sorry, before using that visualization, um, seeing uh, how we want to, how we want a performance to be is obviously very good for confidence building. Um, have a mission statement, why you're doing what you're doing, and refer back to that when, as you mentioned, you go through the pain and suffering. When things get tough, come back to this so you can react to the situation tougher and, and uh, with, a, uh, with a mental toughness. And a big thing that I like to say is just be where your feet are and, and let it rip. Be who you are, let go, and let it rip. Um, so to kind of list those off, I would say meditate, um, uh, wrestle with that self-talk, make sure that the self-talk is hurt, uh, sorry helpful rather than hurtful, Use positive, positive imagery, create a mission statement, find out why you're doing what you're doing, um, and then just be where your feet are and let it rip. Go have fun. Yeah, those are all great. Um, I, I, you know, you mentioned confidence several times there. Uh, I think as triathletes, we all are familiar with the overconfident athlete. We see mm -hmm. this in the pro levels. We see this in the age group ranks. Is overconfidence detrimental to an athlete or is it the kind of thing that if they believe in themselves so strongly uh, th that they just believe their own press? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a fine line really. I mean, I think you were, obviously you were saying the belief obviously is a, a very key importance to compete at the highest level. You need to believe that you can, otherwise you're never going to do it. However, the flip side to that is overconfidence can lead to lackadaisical performance a lot of the time. Uh, if, you, if you view confidence as like an inverted U, so the low confidence obviously has a negative effect. That middle uh, ground is, is where we want to be. So not like you want to be confident and have that strong belief, but not overconfident that you become lazy, you feel that all you need to do is show up and you'll win, you won't put in the effort, um, you'll, you'll cut corners in your training because – 
you do think that you're too good to really commit that time um, in certain areas. So you, do, we do notice that people get lazy, and you can go to other sports where you can we can bring out examples of that where we've seen people who are overconfident and can trash talk and and say you know outrageous things in interviews and then they go on and they lose because they are overconfident but i know we're not focusing on that and we're focusing on the triathlete but yeah it's all about uh we can see them cut corners get lazy uh with their training and and think that they don't need to to commit to the levels that they have based on what they've done in the past now referring to the past is great for confidence for sure it is it's it's one of the strongest sources of confidence that we see in the lip in the scientific literature however there's a fine there's a there's a there's a fine balance between the two you can't obviously rely on the past to bring it success in the present um and obviously being mindful of that and being aware that you do need to get your head down and you do need to work and you can't let your brash arrogance kind of take you um, to the levels that you were before if that kind of makes sense it does. Uh, and as a coach, I often struggle, you know, uh, we come across athletes who have unrealistic goals. And when they don't reach those goals, they can blame it on all kinds of things rather than looking inwards and recognizing that maybe their goals weren't, um, you know, realistic. Right. How, as a coach, can you help that athlete recognize that maybe their goals were set too high or maybe their goals weren't in keeping with what was practical or realistic without necessarily undermining their self-confidence and uh, desire to keep going? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of the time in any kind of event that we engage in, we want the results quickly. And and this isn't this is the reality of life, really, is that we don't get the res- these results quickly in sports in in any other event that we kind of commit our our uh, kind of time and effort to so essentially it's just watch the rush if there if they're your goals for right now well let's focus on smaller goals that we can achieve to hopefully get that we might not get that the first time and that's completely fine but let's put in let's create these healthy habits and these healthy behaviors for the time being that if it's not this event, if it's not the next event, if it's not even the one after that, that eventually we will get to, we will achieve these goals that you want to achieve. And it's what I was saying at the very beginning of our um, discussion is it's expecting those fast results and then not getting them and then having the lack of confidence and the lack of enjoyment in the process. It's, it's, being fair to yourself, being realistic with yourself and trusting the process. There's no rush to get these set goals um, that we're kind of setting ourselves that, as you've rightly just pointed out, that are beyond our level of performance. Just keep it slow, keep it steady, set realistic goals and then trust the process that over a period of time you will get to where you want to be. And it's with anything, any elite sport, any level of Jiu-Jitsu even takes um, a considerable amount of time and patience to get where you need to do so. I would just say, just be patient and trust the process. Trust your coach. You, you know, you you're competing or you're training with this coach for a reason. Trust his ability. Trust her ability. Uh, trust yourself as well. But then also, let's just sit down and, and slow down and get on the horse a little bit and let it rip. Don't expect things too quickly. 
Uh, Fraser Atkinson is a instructor in sports psychology at the University of British Columbia. He's also a mental health, uh, excuse me, a mental performance coach and has worked with athletes at uh, all levels. Uh, Fraser, thank you so much for joining me today on the TriDoc podcast for a really fascinating conversation on how to prepare and how to compete uh, with the mental aspects during a race. Thank you so much, Jeff. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. You can find archives of all of the shows as well as a handy collections feature where I have grouped the shows by category at the-tridoc-podcast.captivate.fm. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode? Or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on future episodes? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. You can also reach out to me on my Facebook page, which is the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, or TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel, as well as tridoccoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide as a triathlon coach. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with an interview with Kim Suthiwan. She's a triathlete, a triathlon coach, an ambassador for the Ironman and USAT Triathlon Foundations, and a whole lot more going on on a very fascinating resume in the sport. Of course, I'll also have another medical question to answer. But until then, train hard, train healthy. Train hard, train healthy.